0: Welcome to Oral Hygiene, it's the podcast where we look at educational films, experimental and caught films, interesting documentaries. Uh, this is Matt coming back to do a chat about music, is a former Curtis Mayfield band leader, session dude, make, having an album coming out this year, right? Is that still the case?
1: We're hoping they, for the end, end of the quarter. <laughs> okay, well, hello, Buzz
0: <laughs> Hey,
1: how's it going?
0: And what what cafe is that? It's something something cafe, right? Oh, Muse Cafe. Muse. Oh, I should be able to remember that. I told you my uh, Muse story, did I? Maybe not. Maybe Uh, maybe I didn't bring it up last time. Um, It's uh, when I first came back to Japan. I was in this um, makeshift apartment for like well, a real apartment, but I was only in it for a month, waiting to go into the real apartment, and um. It was a company apartment, so uh, the girl coming in the next month came to check it out and bother her a friend because she didn't know me and I guess uh, thought I might be creepy or something. So they see uh, a couple synthesizers and, and guitars sitting around in there, and this this uh, lady in an Australian accent is like, oh, you must be a muso!
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like we can't was, have that living here.
0: Yeah, like it was some kind of insult or something. Like, oh my god, like, what a geek. I'm like, I, I, I thought having... Musical instruments was cool.
1: <laughs> it's like that in that episode of The Simpsons where uh, Lisa's on the on the bridge playing sax with uh, basically it was Sonny Rollins, but she's like, Lisa, get away from that jazz man.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then they a song about later, I think. But uh, anyway, today's today's movie I don't believe in involves Sonny Rollins much. Um, yeah. It is The Wrecking Crew, the uh, L.A. based pool of. Session musicians, uh, mostly known for playing on everything in the 1960s that wasn't Motown.
1: (laughs) Mostly unknown for playing.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, also unfortunately unknown. That's why we need uh, documentaries like this. But, um, Buzz, could you give us like the TV guide synopsis? Uh, If you were a TV guide writer. Yeah.
1: Well, basically (laughs) it, um, there was a group of studio musicians in LA uh, through the 60s and, the, and early 70s. They had about a good 10 or 12-year run. And I think they said they played on over 10,000 different records and uh, film and TV shows. So these right. were extremely busy session musicians.
0: <laughs> well, I think uh, drummer Hal Blaine actually holds some kind of like Guinness record or something for being on the most number ones.
1: Seven, seven years in a row of record of the year.
0: All right, oh, him yeah. on drumming on all of them, okay yeah <laughs> yeah I I mean, still...
1: you know, all those guys have such an incredible uh, legacy out of that that period of time
0: and um you know a lot of times I'm like, oh, where did this sort of thing first come into your life? Where did you first hear this music? And yeah. it was just there, you know <laughs> <laughs> uh, this was un- inescapable music for anyone living in well, the western world probably and beyond
1: (laughs) yeah i mean i I grew up with all that music i didn't know who was playing it but um you know i was i was i was alive and kicking when it was all happening
0: so i guess where i first figured out like something i remember when i was like three or four years old just listening to the in the car and listening to some pop record and just thinking how can they do all of that without making a mistake (laughs) <laughs> like i was like how could you play an entire song without making one mistake not understanding you have takes and all in overdubbing and all that yes. at the time <laughs> a and, few years
1: and the, and the ability to punch in
0: yeah and, and when i first started to figure out um that you know it wasn't necessary the bands playing on these would have been um do you remember the uh comic strip uh, bloom county
1: yeah
0: it's got where uh opus the penguin is dating a hippie girl who becomes shocked when she suddenly finds out the monkeys didn't play on their albums, you know, like (laughs) 1986. So, but Hey, I was like seven years old. I was like, what, what's that mean? Oh my.
1: (laughs) I think a lot of people were shocked at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Shocked and not shocked.
0: Well, they had like, I mean, the people playing on there was the best band, right? So (laughs) absolutely.
1: I mean, you know, you got Hal Blaine and Carol Kay and you got, you know these great songwriters writing all your songs because when they when they finally did an album where they played stuff it kind of (laughs) tanked
0: yeah um i as a teenager i wasn't cool enough to really know all the jazz and and really that much about you know deep session musicians but even 14 year old matt knew to listen to carol k when uh trying to learn to play the bass so (laughs)
1: yeah
0: and um yeah so i don't know uh what what what's your favorite you know setting for these guys i i think my first note is is about the fact that i would make um smile cassettes the beach boys smile cassettes and make people listen to them back in the 90s so obviously i'm into that a uh, whole uh brian wilson scene
1: right well you know what, what's weird because at that time by the time i was 10 i was more of a i was i was grabbing i was listening to jazz and i wasn't part of a lot of the pop music that was going around uh like the beach boys i could not relate to them because you know i'm in new york and they're talking about surfing uh, Mm -hmm. and and they're talking about cars and i can't drive so um i i didn't pay as much attention to it now i go back and and listen to you know what brian wilson did and i'm just like you know mind blown
0: that's how it kind of works, though, because the radio is just going to play you those surf hits, which are all well and good. But, uh, right.
1: Yeah. Well, and that's what radio was in the 60s. It was just the hits.
0: Yeah, because I actually... And that's an interesting thing to look at how the Wrecking Crew added to the recordings, because it starts off with the Beach Boys. It's like a garage band. Then they start to sound really slick, because he's slowly <laughs> replacing the musicians with the Wrecking Crew. and um, All those groups. In the late 60s albums... Um, now they're recording in Brian Wilson's house and they're starting to play again. It turns out being like this weird, minimalist music, you know? Yeah, it
1: becomes a whole different vibe.
0: Which I do like that vibe a lot, but you can definitely tell the difference between having these guys play on your recordings and not.
1: (laughs) Right, because at that point, you want hits. And you want the people who are going to play those hits and know how to work together and function very well together.
0: Yeah, I mean... the you're playing these guys are literally and gals were doing what like 10 12 hour days like six or seven days a week
1: (laughs) yeah i mean there were there was a couple of times where they talked about you know they'd go in uh in the morning cut six songs and then come back that uh evening and cut six more where they would knock out an album in a day
0: I'm sitting here wondering would it, would that be fun or not be fun? I mean, you're getting paid, of course, so it's a job. But <laughs> um, it, you know,
1: it, you you can look at it now, and it's all very glamorized.
0: Yeah, of course.
1: But um, having been involved in sessions where I'm sitting there the entire day, um, it can it can drag on a little bit. You, the good thing about it is, if especially if you're working with the same people. There's a there's a camarader- camaraderie that happens, and so you have you know you you have shared lives and shared stories and things like that.
0: I'm not a session guy, of course, but I've I played in orchestras. I guess that'd be my analogy, because um, I know American amateur orchestras are maybe a two or a two and a half hour practice, whereas um the orchestras I played with in Japan are you know at least like like five hours. Right. <laughs> but, uh, during holiday there was holiday once and it was just like for like three days in a row it was like nine hours. And uh unfortunately I play a cello, which is an instrument you can take a nap on. So <laughs> I happen to love the cello. Yeah, I think I fell asleep playing a few times. <laughs> so that's kind of fun. But uh <laughs> um but yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to, you know, when another section's working, I, I imagine that's just like boring as hell. Um I know ringo complained on sergeant peppers that all he played on sergeant peppers was chess yeah
1: (laughs) he said he got very good at chess during those sessions
0: right so uh you know
1: and and that was you know that that was making an album an entirely different way than records had been made before so you know i could kind of see that
0: right right but um yeah i guess the waiting would have to be the worst part (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, I, it it sounds like from the wrecking crew though you didn't have a lot of waiting around going on. It was you know here's your parts or here here's your here's your roadmap, and by talking it through, f- figuring it out, playing you know, I don't think you had a lot of downtime.
0: Yeah, perhaps, but yeah, I, I'm I guess that's the orchestra because it's like you know the violins always they gets. The most time spent because they have usually have the fastest most intricate passages so you're saying the most
1: people in their section
0: right exactly because <laughs> usually in the cello section it's like ah you're the one screwing up <laughs> you know because you can hear there's only like six people there <laughs> Bad guy. yeah yeah so that that happens from time to time but <laughs> um oh what was the thought i had oh just a, a couple of thoughts i had one is I actually really—they bring up Dennis Wilson, so that's who I want to bring up. Uh, Okay. (laughs) I actually really like his drumming. I understand why he wasn't playing on those sessions, but right, just as an insane pounder, he was fantastic.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and you know, and that's that's been the case. That's still the case now. There's a lot of times the live, the live musicians, the live players don't get to do the records. Because yeah. there's two entirely different mindsets.
0: But, and, yeah, there's there's a, um, I think it's 1980 Beach Boys performance where it has um, Mike Love and Dennis Wilson, like, hate staring each other on stage as uh, <laughs> Denny proceeds to play one of their surfing hits, like, way too fast with, like, a punk rock stomp. Uh. I think that's when he was probably like uh, one of them was like dating the other's daughter or something horrible like that. So he, that was, I'm sure that was coming through, too. But <laughs> that's the
1: other thing in bands. You always get the, the, the drama, the conflicts. Uh, it, you know, I think the difference between studio work and actually playing live is ego.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because you guys in the, stu- in, the,
1: in the studio, you have to, you know, you have to kind of relinquish that because it's it's about the song at that point. Uh, You're not looking at going beyond that four minutes or whatever the length of the song is. You do that and you're done. Whereas, you know, with a band, there's so many dynamics involved with, with people that live, eat and breathe and sleep together.
0: (laughs) One thing um, that you can answer for me is I've never been entirely sure what they mean by a chart. Okay.
1: (laughs) Okay. There, there can be, a chart is an overall term. There can be several different iterations of a chart. You can go in with a complete score where everybody's part from the bass player to the drummer, the guitar, everything is written out note for note. That's a chart. You can also have a, I want this chord here, these two chords in measure six, blah, blah, blah that's a chart so a chart is nothing more than a map and depending on how detailed that map is going to be
0: yeah because they they flashed um just one page of music where it was just like it it was on sheet music which was just listing the chords by letters i was like i I could handle that (laughs) yeah um,
1: and a lot and a lot of sessions are done that way
0: yeah But but, but
1: then when you have things like brian wilson coming in he's writing for you, uh, specifically this, no, I want this on the piano and he's got that written out and I want this from so-and-so and this is written out.
0: Right. Right. So uh, I wonder baseline
1: uh, to good vibrations.
0: Oh, it was you just know? straight up written out. Okay.
1: That was written out, you know, like Carol Kaye said, she would have never thought of playing that. <laughs>
0: yeah i yeah. guess not and i know some of the not complain but people would point out to him hey these notes clash and he's like not when it's going to be with everything else but well, i guess that's I, what I they can't call it i not remember
1: what song it was but he brought in one chart and it was i think in like in the key of d and hey G, that's my was that in the key of d <laughs> <laughs> yeah the key that's in the key of g um and she goes uh, brian i think you made a mistake everybody's chart is in D, but mine's in A. And he said, no, that's not a mistake. And when she played it, she was just like, I just can't believe it worked.
0: <laughs> I um have coming in, in the mail, actually. It should arrive tomorrow or, or Friday. I just learned about, this is off topic, but have you ever heard of the, the Gothic Symphony? Uh uh-uh. It's a guy named Havergill Bryan. I just heard in our podcast talk about it. And it was so insane. I was like, okay, I have to order this. It's a two-hour symphony. The first the first um, half, which is its own thing basically requires I think three hundred people on oh, stage geez. and the second part requires like nine hundred people to perform nine hundred some of them are off stage it's like horn sections off stage so there's what only stage like
1: stage can accommodate that many people
0: uh, outdoor festival I don't know but um, yeah. yeah but yeah it's just it's only been like recorded like three times because it's that insane <laughs> so uh, just yeah. just to, you know no, nothing in the record crew did match those proportions of course but yeah I, I'm, I'm very curious Except for some to hear of
1: those that. phil Spector sessions
0: yeah but he needed some reverb right <laughs>
1: he needed reverb and he needed like he, like four piano players uh, four he, had guitars. The,
0: he had to wave a gun around at the session musicians for a while <laughs> <laughs> he's a bugaboo right it's like
1: it's, oh, it's like yeah,
0: he, it's like um you know birth of a nation or Triumph of the will in, in the movie world it's like you have to acknowledge it and in phil spector's it's still great music but you're like oh god separate the artist please
1: yeah because he i mean he made some great records
0: yeah yeah no well, doubt of that but uh but, I, I guess
1: uh,
0: and then in know, england was it i guess joe meek would be the equivalent of a person who kind of crashed and burned, but made some great records yeah but uh, I I do love his was I hear new New World album that's fantastic stuff. <laughs> um, sorry, we, we, way back to that that other question uh, I originally asked though. I, I I guess what is the setting that you most like to hear the Wrecking grew in? Maybe a yeah, jazzy I, one. I don't know. <laughs> um,
1: I w- it would have been interesting to hear them play some actual jazz because most of them. And you know, even the same thing with Motown uh, session players—they were all jazz players—and I think that's what kind of gives you the freedom to interpret things much differently than um, how the you know, if I was just a you know a a standard rock guitar player or something, I'm going to look at things uh, differently than somebody who can look at it from that perspective and this other perspective and uh so you know that would that would have been great to hear them knock out some you know good straight ahead to see how it sounded
0: yeah i guess herb alpert doesn't count (laughs) no (laughs) the original
1: smooth jazz
0: yeah but that was a whole another like facet of the wrecking crew of course i've heard that stuff but i just never really you know thought too hard about all the uh lounge music and stuff they were they were rocking out
1: (laughs) well you know they they had they had night jobs as well so because you know most of them were still gigging when they had time off
0: yeah yeah I guess they were which wasn't
1: much but
0: did any of these guys find themselves into like any of those uh you know 50s cool jazz west coast albums
1: i don't think so
0: okay because i was thinking that would might be a place where you'd hear a few of these guys but um
1: you know i mean carol k played jazz guitar and some some groups and things but nothing that i that you know i would know off the top of my head
0: right okay
1: but but she she worked the, the uh the scene uh as a jazz guitarist for a while
0: but then we got like i don't know did glenn campbell seemed he was more of a country guy so he would have different he got, chops. He
1: got that misnomer just because of where where he came out solo wise glenn campbell mm. is an amazing guitar player
0: oh most certainly but uh
1: and um you know he he definitely had that um i'm not even sure where he was from but you know he kind of had like that midwestern night about him because uh In the Wrecking Crew book, I don't know if you've ever read that. There's a lot of anecdotes about, like he would talk about he couldn't read a note of music, so when they were given a chart, he would have to ask Tommy Tedesco, "How does this go?" (laughs) And then Tommy would play it for him. He's like, "Okay, thanks."
0: (laughs) Oh, actually, when I when we were talking about charts, I actually was going to kind of bring up the could glenn campbell read a chart and i was like oh, of course he could he was a wrecking crew guy but uh-huh. <laughs> apparently not okay no. <laughs> yeah <You laughs>
1: and there was there were i think there were a few in there that didn't read music
0: right um it was funny because uh when i was younger first reading books and stuff about the beach boys i was like oh he must have been so excited to be called up to you know play play brian wilson's part for a few months right now i'm like oh he must have felt like he was slumming which he kind of (laughs) refers to in this a little bit because he's been playing with top flight guys and now he actually is just playing with a bunch of uh teenagers
1: yeah pretty much (laughs) it um you know but that had to be exciting on its own to you know see the world through their eyes you know on tour and things like that
0: oh yeah yeah just
1: that that had to be kind of cool the attention that you get
0: musically you know satisfying i'm not so sure but uh
1: right
0: the first major band i played and we just had a fantastic drummer so all the every band i played it after that i was always like oh you know (laughs) (laughs) you know uh, because a good drummer pretty much makes a band most of the time (laughs)
1: they're the driver
0: uh the the only time it really worked out with a less technically proficient guy was just again getting someone just bashing the hell out of it. So it's like, you either need yeah. to learn to play well or just hit them as hard as you can.
1: To, to your point about, in about those guys in a jazz setting, I just, I just recalled uh, the piano, one of the piano players, Don Randy, he used to, um, he used to do a jazz gig at the baked potato. And I remember being maybe 15 or 16 and i bought an album by dan don randy because he um he had some covers on there that i, I was familiar with and you know he kind of was trying to like get that little ramsey lewis type vibe but he was a good player
0: well oh, right yeah
1: so that was the closest i can recall any of them to a um a jazz thing
0: Sorry, you just blew my mind because when you said Ramsey Lewis, my eyes were going over a Ramsey Lewis cover. So it's like, oh, that's trippy. Oh.
1: <laughs>
0: I mean, they're just all sitting. I have these bricks of CDs next to me. So, right. <laughs> For a few, about ten years ago, when they realized nobody was going to buy, you know, CDs anymore, they just start start putting out. I don't know if you get these in America, but these little vinyl reproduction boxes. Oh. <laughs> so that's. 20 miles Davis albums uh, you know like Columbia stuff <laughs> yeah so. yeah
1: they box them all the whole the the Columbia years and the blue note years yeah I think I flashed
0: like yeah I flashed you the Philadelphia one last time we were on right
1: because <laughs> they're all just like right here for easy the Philadelphia access years.
0: <laughs> yeah 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 um what what session would you want in on if you could go back in time and uh get in on one of these
1: Oh, wow. You know, I would have probably enjoyed playing on a Sinatra ses- session.
0: Oh, but Sinatra himself might be a little intimidating.
1: <laughs> yeah, oh, a little? <laughs> there, there's a, um, in the book again, there's a great story about Glenn Campbell and Frank Sinatra, if I can share with you. Uh, Glenn Campbell was a huge Sinatra fan. And he could not believe he was going to get to play on a Sinatra record. I'm kind of assuming it may have been something stupid, but he ne- he never named the song. You know the song something stupid. Right, right. And um, he um, he asked to be set up right next to the vocal booth so he could watch watch Frank do his thing. So the whole time he's going through the session and he's, and, and this is Glenn telling the story in the book. And he says that, um, you know, he's just smiling over there. He's just, he's on cloud nine. He's playing with his idol. And at the end of the session, Frank's in the control room with his posse or bodyguards or whatever. (laughs) And, um. They're talking to the engineer, and Glenn Campbell's just kind of hanging out. So after Frank leaves, he goes up to the control room, and he's telling the engineer, he's like, man, it was such a great session with Frank and everything. And I was like, yeah. He goes, um, did he have anything to say about me? And uh, the engineer looks at him and said. Yeah, he did ask one question, and Glenn's like, What? He said he wanted to know who the faggot staring at him all day was, <laughs> which is typical of Frank, you know?
0: Yeah, I, I thought you were going to be like, Oh, he, yeah, we erased your track. So, no, 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 <laughs> <laughs> it's a better story that way, isn't it? Yeah, and yeah, I, was, I just finished reading a book about. Warner brother records. And it was kind of interesting how long that label resisted going into anything like rock, <laughs> because, oh, you know, Sinatra. I, I,
1: I think a lot of them did
0: yeah. at and, first until, you know, the one or two slipped in and the checks started rolling and then they changed exactly. their minds real quick. But, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um,
1: when the, when the youth of America decides to spend their money, you're going to go that direction.
0: I was actually a little surprised, um, how, early. I never really thought of these guys being in effect in the late 50s so much, I guess, probably because they weren't playing so much rock at the time.
1: No, probably probably none.
0: Yeah, that's when you're getting these TV themes and and, and, uh, again, those those swing sessions and stuff.
1: (laughs) And, you know, even the and the even the TV themes started getting a lot slicker once the wrecking crew came in.
0: Oh, yeah, most th- certainly
1: because the arrangers had, you know, now you could borrow. You didn't have to just stick to um, either kind of an orchestral type theme or a even maybe even a jazz based theme. You could combine it with some rock elements and things. And these were the guys that could do it.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm just sitting here thinking that. Those 60s themes could definitely take 80s themes out back and, you know, beat the cra- uh, crap oh, out of them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'll, I'll take Mission Impossible over um, any 80s TV show theme.
0: Um, the Full House is what was coming to mind first. I guess it's a yeah, little more okay, yeah. like, Oh, Oh, there, I just made that get stuck in your head. Um, I, was
1: th- I was thinking of that one that um, Alan Thicke was on.
0: Oh, oh, oh uh, growing pains. Was that growing pains? Yeah, I, that that yeah. might
1: have been it. I I, I didn't watch Family
0: Ties. Yeah. I'd see them, you know, after school in like a block, so I couldn't really distinguish which one was which.
1: Right. And now you don't you don't get themes with most TV shows.
0: Yeah, yeah. I feel I feel like that star with Lost where the theme is just boom. Yeah, but
1: they, what,
0: in Japan, what? They would they ruin shows like lost and uh, other shows like that where it's trying to be dramatic or that they'll uh-huh. get like a j-pop idol and use the show to promote like their new single or something so each season of lost the theme song in japan is a different j-pop song
1: well and and they do that here it's like a lot of tv shows will be um what their parent company you know might be warner brothers might be a, a parent company and so they will find their newest artists that they're trying to break. Um, you know, like Grey's Anatomy does this, you know, all the time, but were, about 10 years ago, they broke some artists because they had her music come in during, you know, uh, a very touching death scene and people started writing in and, um, you know, so the next thing you know the, this record is is a smash hit so that's where they introduce new music now by and sidestep having to pay for a theme
0: yeah i just had a a friend uh who was on the podcast who said warner had just bought his band's album for that purpose yeah just uh you not not like they're i guess distributing the record but they're going to use it you know in a tv show or a movie or something Mm -hmm. so but
1: and if something sticks then they'll go with it
0: yeah, I mean, he's got shows to play either way, so whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As a guitarist, one thing I I thought was interesting was uh, they almost almost just an aside where I just mentioned, oh, you gotta always be stocked with a uh, light gauge strings, and I, oh, yeah, that's yeah. gotta be that's gotta be a difference between I guess being a more live player or a session player because I've always maybe it's because I start with bass, but I usually end up putting like bridge wires on my like, guitars. <laughs>
1: I don't know what those are.
0: Just real thick strings. Oh, okay. <laughs> that you can pummel, because <laughs> I put thick I, strings on the guitar and then break two of them in a show, you know. So
1: <laughs> I know I know with guitar when you put you know especially if you have very thin strings you can bend them more, uh, but they're harder to keep in tune. Yes,
0: yeah, since since I've become more of a you know playing at home guy, I've gone kind of to medium, but not all the way to the to the light uh-huh. gauge. So um, I, I think the bridge. The bridge wire um reference was a uh, dick dale he said he put bridge wires on his guitars okay <laughs> because if you know dick dale he would just play the most aggressive th- oh, way yeah. ever i mean <laughs> so that, yeah. I, that was my one regret selling my old telecaster was uh this the scratch plate actually did have blood stains on it <laughs> <laughs> so yeah
1: i hope you got extra for it
0: nah i was too beat up to get much for it at all <laughs> you know it's, it was the maple fretboard or just worn down in multiple places all that sort of stuff uh-huh. uh you know lots of dings uh, come on a telecaster always looks beat up
1: well, it's not it's not really a guitar if it's not
0: well i was saying that i, I recently um came across a, a new telecaster and it's 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 perfectly clean and it probably is gonna stay that way unless I just just decide to throw it down the stairs to see what happens. But
1: <laughs> yeah, somebody just gave me a Strat, and um, I don't have it close enough where I can grab it. But it it's it's red. It's got the 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 tuning pegs of the lock kind. And i didn't even i was like this has got to be some kind of knockoff this can't be an actual fender but i took it to somebody that knows guitars and they're like oh yeah that's
0: well, someone that's probably installed the locking one
1: um i don't know i it, I, I looked it up online and the, the it's it's just a newer one
0: uh yeah it,
1: you know so i' oh, don't wait have a minute to
0: I almost want you I almost want to see it. I think I might know the one you're talking about. Is the uh, headstock uh, kind of backwards looking?
1: Um I'll go get
0: it. Okay, now I'm curious. Yeah. All so right.
1: Pause for a second.
0: <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, it's back in. Oh, okay. Yes, 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 that that's like an '80s Fender when they were trying to get in with the metal crowd. <laughs>
1: oh, okay. yeah, it's very metally.
0: Yeah, yeah. There, there was some. So they put something to it, like the zing. It's not zing, but it's something better than that. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They try, they briefly tried to get into the metal crowd, but uh, the metal guys they wanted their ESPs and their Jacksons, and they weren't gonna do a Fender. So. <laughs> But, yeah, that's the most metal Fender I've seen. I, I also got one of those um, combination jazz P-Bass Fenders, and it, it looks kind of metalish, But you can dial it to sound very Motown without much trouble. So it looks metal, but, you know, that was some... Back to Motown, I, I did learn, for any bass players, uh, if you really want that sound on a P-Bass, uh, turn your tone knob almost all the way down. It sounds like crap when you're playing by yourself, but then when you pl- put it in a mix, you're... You, it, just sounds phenomenal
1: (laughs) there's a um six-part series that's running now on hulu with rick rubin and paul mccartney and he talks about when he first heard jamerson and how he was different ways they were trying to emulate that tone
0: yeah yeah and uh, his bass. and i wonder if they ever figured out turn the toad knob all the way down (laughs)
1: But I that's don't know ca- if they got got that far, but uh, that's
0: counterintuitive for a guitar player because you're like it always sound, you know it's brighter the more up so you're like oh turn it all the way up. Um, another one is to get Eric Clapton sort of a cream tone. You also would do that. Uh, you'd go to the back the neck pickup, and then turn your tone all the way down and turn the fuzz all the way up, and it sounds that's that's the cream tone the woman tone I think is what he called it but I'm not quite sure and I, I probably don't want to know especially with there, there's Clapton that's, that's a dude where you probably don't want to know all of his politics and stuff <laughs> probably not he's whoop, Sorry, he's a little better at keeping his mouth shut I guess than some people mo- most of the time give me one moment I'm going to make a sure. horrible noise here dun 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 there we go this had some cable issues so now i know to edit a spot okay <laughs> uh how about underrated wrecking crew players i mean carol k Hal blaine you know glenn campbell they're, their names the, always come up to the stars
1: yeah um sax player his name comes up a few times but um what was his name?
0: Hills Sam. was it?
1: Uh, Placer.
0: Okay. Obviously, he's underrated because we're having trouble getting exactly. him out. Exactly.
1: <laughs> and you know, and he even talks about how uh, he did a, you know, because he's the guy that plays the horn on Pink Panther. Um, and the um, there was a commercial when I was a kid for um, Alka-Seltzer called No Matter What Shape Your Stomach Is In. And it would be, you know, they'd have all these different people, fat people, skinny people, hula dancers, you know, the whole gamut, but everybody gets an upset stomach and you take Alka-Seltzer. And the music the wrecking crew played, well, and he he was the lead horn player, played, played the melody, played the solo and played the, the bit at the end. Well, the record company, it all of a sudden it started being the most requested song, so it became a number one hit and they put it out under a group called the markets or the Marquettes, I think. And, um, it really hurt him to the core that his name was nowhere to be found. And on the album cover, it's like four four little white kids uh, being credited with this.
0: And that's who they sent on the road. <laughs> oh, you know,
1: absolutely.
0: Well, they needed him to play. The you know, but they
1: did himself. that. You know, Phil Spector did that with his groups, the Crystals and the Ronettes. You know, he'd have Darlene Love in there working, working her butt off, and she would never see a road gig.
0: When... Did the session folks really start getting credited? Because I feel like the by the '70s, the you know the new LA crew tended to get credited yeah. more.
1: Yes, uh, in the '70s you could start reading album credits and go, "Oh, who's this guy on playing guitar and who's this horn player?" Um, you, you didn't get that in the '60s, and apparently the record companies didn't want it. Because why would you want to buy a Birds album and find out they're not even playing? <laughs> you know, you just bought Mister Tambourine Man and they're not playing.
0: That is the Birds always fascinate me though with that because I really do like the sound of the actual Birds. I mean, I yeah, they, almost they, they, because they're lo-fi.
1: They became they became a good band, but you know, like um, was it Roger McGuinn? who actually had had some experience they let him actually play on the record and crosby and all them were uh hillman they were just not real happy so um but he said you know it was such a thrill playing with these guys he said you know the rest of the band was ticked off he said but when we did turn 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 it took 70 some takes (laughs) you know uh, he said, "You know, Mr. Tambourine Man was done in two.
0: Yeah, there's. So, um, I think it's a Spanish Harlem incident where uh, Chris Holman seems to be playing the wrong note for like an entire verse. Sounds great, to be honest. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the, but it's just yeah, he's playing the wrong note. And it's like, eh, okay, that's interesting. And uh,
1: yeah, I mean, there are a lot of happy mistakes that happen.
0: I do like the sound of a band like about to fly apart at any moment and never does.
1: There, there is a. There is a. Uh, I don't want to say a charm there there's just there's an intensity about you know are they going to make it are they going to make it you know or it just it adds an edge that you don't get from when something's very polished
0: yeah I guess that's, that's the whole the uh replacements thing would be sort of my uh I guess early replacements would be my gold standard for that Hell, yeah. they probably did have studio. well they they replaced their guitar player with basically a studio musician at some point. So, <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah,
1: you you know when you when you've got a when you, when you have it, you're still gonna you're still gonna work for that almost near perfect take.
0: And it is Oh, go ahead.
1: I was just gonna say, but even even when I was with Curtis, we'd record something, and I you know I'd get through the whole song, but it, like you know at one point I'd hit a clam, and I'd just be man, Curtis, can we punch that in? Oh, uh, no, Cat, you had the feeling. And he would leave it. And, you know, I'd be upset about it, but years later, I'm just like, eh, you know, I've, I've heard better, better musicians than me hit glams on records.
0: <laughs> no, I know the Beatles would say they could barely listen to their own recordings because they just hear the mistakes.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, you listen to uh, Let It Be, Right after the guitar solo on that verse, uh, when he hits that that chord that, that um, what was supposed to be the A minor chord, it is horrendous. <laughs> you never notice it.
0: No, no, as well, that's a, to the uh, the feel. Well, again, the feeling, right? You got the feeling. So <laughs>
1: that's that's it. That's what that's what it all boils down to. And the Wrecking Crew seemed to have the best of both worlds. You know they had the polish and they also had the feel for that stuff
0: yeah um and i am thinking like a lot of you know kind of legacy bands they do tend to find session musicians when they are plugging in you know missing or dead members or whatever um <laughs> we just did a show where we were talking about um seeing the who you know like right uh where, where the guys talking to it had seen the who in the early 80s had seen them recently and you know it's like well yeah you're not seeing ent whistle in um Keith Moon but Pino um Pellin Pellin no, yeah I just couldn't remember his name last time either He's, I mean he's a top flight bassist you're still getting Absolutely. a top flight bassist if you see the who and yeah. uh <laughs> and you know well, Zach Starkey like when, learned from Keith Moon anyway so
1: <laughs> Yeah it's like when uh, the Stones replaced Bill Wyman Yeah yeah you know,
0: Who, well, why isn't Daryl Jones credited as a member of that band? He's been there he's for 20 plus to, years.
1: He's not allowed to be. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that was, that was part of the deal because he, he wasn't a, a Rolling Stone.
0: Yeah. Okay. Even though
1: they do give it to uh, Ron Woods, I guess exactly. he was, Ron's been there longer, but um, I, I actually like Daryl Jones better.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, anyway, that always bugs me that he's not like an actual member. And I was remembering yeah. being real confused in the mid 90s when that happened. Like, is he what? Yeah, no? he's
1: not even allowed to talk about a lot of, uh, you know, about the band.
0: Wow. Crazy. <laughs> I mean,
1: he can, you know, he can talk about, yeah, we're going out on tour or whatever, but he, he can't divulge any, you know, he's got that NDA he has to live up to.
0: Right. Um, <clears throat> another band that uh kind of does a fun i guess wrecking crew reenactment would be um the wonderments which are the bands the the core of the band that uh brian wilson's been touring with for geez almost 20 years now um and they they do a pretty good job they they get that yeah that a little, little bit of that funk feeling there's like it's not reaver but there's some <coughs> mm, there's like some peanut butter around the sounds of the wrecking crew i guess
1: Reverb is very important.
0: <laughs> yeah, but but even beyond that, just, I guess, the sound, uh, maybe it's a tapey sound, but uh, that's, uh, you know, I'm sitting here trying to do, like, the Grateful Dead thing, give this, like, you know, make it the song sound like verbal Mist or something, right? Right. But, uh, <laughs> so I'm saying. it's just a chonky peanut butter sound <laughs> that you get on these L.A. 60s recordings.
1: Yeah, you know, and I was... Uh, it's either, even, even in the jazz circle, I was always more East coast than West coast because the West coast sound, e- even on those records, there's always a certain polish to them. Whereas you listen to things that would come out of Motown or out of New York and, th- and things like that. There's always this edge. It's almost like what you were talking about where, um, you feel like it could fall apart at any minute. But it's not. It's it's being held together, but there's always this almost a galloping feeling, like we're 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 going to get there, right? If that, make, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. I well, I guess I'll go East Coast. My my favorite jazz musician is pretty much Sun Ra If I if I have to call out somebody, so you never know what you're going to get on one of his recordings. No, you sure don't. <laughs> But uh, you know, you might get things that almost sound like big band, but something's a little off, or you might just get like screaming synthesizers and exactly. percussion. So you can get anything. <laughs> but uh, that that's part of the fun of that. So maybe yeah. that's why. And also, he has a movie and cool headgear. So <laughs> <laughs> it's so. it's all about the headgear.
1: Yeah, yeah. And
0: George <laughs> Clinton knew that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> For some some proto stuff.
1: You know, and that's a band that. If you've ever been, I don't know if you've ever been to any any of the concerts. It's a revolving stage because they'll play for like four hours, but it's a revolving stage of musicians. It's yeah, that's like,
0: definitely a legacy band worth. Uh, I have not seen them, but that's one I I would love to. Yeah, I mean, uh, even uh, now,
1: <laughs> a bass player. You know, a different bass player may show up after the first two hours. Uh, another drummer may go ahead and decide to start playing, uh, it's it's a revolving door,
0: Something, but it's, I,
1: but it's always good.
0: Something I saw, I guess it was about 10 years ago when I came back to Japan and I was training, and we went into like a little bar, which was kind of a jazz club, and there was a group there doing a, a pitch-perfect Oscar Peterson. I mean, Japanese folks, right? But pitch-perfect, sound great, but there was nothing more. That was it. It was just like, it sounds exactly like Oscar Peterson. Right. And that, that's, I mean, I'm sure that's what they're going for as well. But yeah, I was like, I'm enjoying this. I like it, but I was kind of like, what's the point? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I've, you know, obviously been, been to Japan um, a lot <laughs> for the last 30 years. And, you know, anytime I go here, jazz in Japan, you've got these amazing players, but there's just that little something that they're lacking, that I think you can only get from the culture here.
0: Yeah, so, yeah, a little little fire. But again, the te- well, you got the technical precision, which um, we usually can't quite match up to. So depends what you're looking for, I suppose. <laughs> yeah,
1: and and the same thing, you know, with L.A. in New York, you know, every, every geographical region. in in the States has its own kind of sound, you know, Memphis had their own thing happening, just like, you know, the wrecking crew out in LA had theirs, uh, the Funk brothers out in Detroit, you know, it's, it's kind of, and you go to Florida and you get an entirely different vibe that nobody else can pick up or new Orleans. So we, we have all these geographical, um, Differences in our music and our approach to music
0: Would you say they're that's kind of going away these days so much, you know kind of uh, cyber collaborations? Maybe muddies up the sounds it
1: depends on It depends on what genre you're going for Um, You know pop music is is always going to be pop music. It's always going to be a bit sanitized to reach the masses but uh, you know, grunge bands out of Portland sounded a whole lot different than, uh, the New York dolls or, you know, that scene, when you start comparing those. And then when you take like the police did not sound like the, the scene that was happening in New York at the time. So I, I just think, you know, you do have a little more melding of cultures because it's a lot easier access right we do have access to much more music than we've ever had before
0: oh definitely too much i mean once you people can barely i mean people don't have the attention span for an album anymore which makes me a little sad
1: (laughs) it is and you know that that's another pet peeve of mine or when cds came out and everybody figured well i can get 70 minutes worth of music on here i'm going to use it and I find it very hard to listen to seventy minutes of anyone's music uh unless you're coming across with all a material.
0: Yeah, I feel like thirty-five minutes is like the perfect album length, which when I first started buying CDs, I was like, That's too short. I'm not getting my money's worth if the album's right. only thirty-five <laughs> minutes. Of course you can put, you know, as a reissue, you can fit two albums on a CD. That's nice, but
1: Yeah, I I I always liked when I bought a record you know, you, you basically got 21 minutes on each side tops. And the good thing about it is you play that record and you flip it over and you play the next side. And when you got done, you would go, Oh, I really like that third song on the, on the other side and you'd play that again and you would start singling out some tracks that just really hit you. And now, if I listen to a seventy-minute CD, I I don't want to hear it more. I'll wait till I hear it the next time, to figure out what songs I'm going to like the most.
0: <laughs> yeah, so it was, um, that's just,
1: that's just me, I guess. But
0: I just rewatched High Fidelity, a movie which I used to love, and I, I oh, was yeah. like, "Wow, this one's dated not so well." Uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the whole idea of the perfect mixtape, you know, which oh uh, yeah is been lost to the wind a playlist is not a mixtape <laughs> and, and yeah. uh, when we talked to our friend from 30 years ago he's like hey man i still have that mixtape you made me in 1992 you know wow <laughs> so you know, that's hip right <laughs> um I, one, one last thing i kind of want to throw out is i feel like the wrecking crew the funk brothers they never even started to get any sort of recognition until like 20 years after they were a thing um,
1: right, I, I mean, what Hal Blaine? Uh, was, ended up being a security guard at one point.
0: Right. So, <laughs> who is who's being neglected now? Are is, do we have like groups of session musicians that work together regularly, or is it all just like completely been dispersed in the industry? I,
1: yeah, I don't think you, you. I don't think we have the same kind of you know, you're not seeing the Muscle Shoals and the Funk Brothers and that kind of thing anymore. Um, Sessions are, you know, different producers bring in different musicians. um, And you can work all around the world. I mean, if I'm signed to Warner Brothers and I decide, you know, I'd really like to do my next album in Brazil. Okay, well, we got a studio there. We'll send you and you know, that's um so you know, I don't know any Brazilian musicians, so it's it's not <laughs> like they have a Brazilian wrecking crew. You know, maybe they do. Right? Like
0: maybe they do. <laughs>
1: you know, but um and maybe twenty years from now we'll find out that there are other wrecking crews that are happening right now.
0: Yeah, actually now that you're mentioning I feel like the uh, the next wrecking crew will probably come from like, you know, Lagos or something where people are just going to realize, hey, there are these guys and they're just like kicking it for like ten years straight, you know, and now we're noticing. So that might be the thing. It's it's not going to be something out of America or England that's the next big uh, studio set. Um, the one that yeah. maybe gets no, me the most is uh, David Bowie's last album, Black Star, where. I think people are a little annoyed they didn't know he was dying yet. And they were like, why did you get rid of your touring band and bring in a bunch of other guys? But maybe that's the modern equivalent of getting your session musicians like uh, just, okay, swapping out my bands for a different sound now.
1: Well, and, you know, like Yoko Ono used to bring in session, you know, all her her albums musically are incredible. I mean, she had nothing more than New York's finest on those records you know, and for a long time, you, I think you have different pockets of wrecking crews. Now, like you, you go through the seventies, almost every disco record parliament, anything that had horns on it, the Brecker brothers and David Sanborn were the horn players.
0: Right. Of course that's, they got a lot that, more credit and their own albums, which is nice. So <laughs>
1: well, yes, yeah, so and they got they got deals at all that. But yeah. um but they weren't credited um per se. I never knew who played uh who the horn section was on, you know, certain certain records. They just well, that's an after because all that disco stuff it was just coming out left and right in the early seventies. <laughs> But uh, I remember reading in uh, Downbeat One issue where Randy Brecker said that they went into a club in New York and 32 of the first 35 songs they heard, they were the horn section, and they had no idea what any of it was being used for. <laughs> they would just go, here, play these parts.
0: Oh, like not even like with... Yeah, like Yeah, they wouldn't even go. be
1: playing necessarily to a full track
0: right okay yeah that that you would be, that would be a mind blower yeah <laughs> so that's
1: that, that's kind of a, like a reverse wrecking crew <laughs> we're, we're going to construct the rest of the crew around you
0: well that i think is again with uh, you know cyber collaborations and things that's probably more the norm these days I'm, I'm setting off now to try and make like a 1970s electra folk rock recreation because i got all these lyrics from the 70s from a guy <laughs> so <laughs> but you know i'm talking to a couple folks and you know just trying to think of how to do it because that sound would best be made by a bunch of people playing in a room together but i can't do that so yeah. i gotta kind of well, uh, improvise a that room,
1: So i'll be in a room so you know feel free to reach out to me
0: okay i, I <laughs> actually i might do that so <laughs> yeah. but um we should be wrapping up today um, with my normal excuse of train time's coming, but you've got a Twitch and stuff going now, so you should definitely talk about that.
1: Yeah, I just started um, maybe two months ago now. Uh, I am I'm bar- I just barely made affiliate status, so it's not like I've got thousands of followers. Uh, I don't even have hundreds or a hundred. But, um, you know, one I have one day where uh, I'll do either sometimes I'll give a let, I do Mondays and Thursdays, Mondays, I'll do like a lesson or something like that. Or like yesterday, I took some isolated tracks from Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder and the Beatles and kind of broke down, uh, four, eight and 16 track recording, how, you know, recording kind of evolved. And then on Thursdays, I, I do an interview with, with different uh, musicians, engineers, industry people, things like that and that that's kind of turning into a pretty cool thing
0: yeah it's in the detection so, isn't it doing it um <laughs> uh where is the link or whatever for that
1: it's just uh, twitch.tv forward slash buzzamato
0: okay so yeah. easy to find easy right, to um, find this one is oral hygiene we're on twitter and facebook and all that um i also talk about sci-fi movies at Matt and Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. If you search those words, you'll run into it. Um, all that is under the umbrella of Podcastio, Podcastius. That's our our Patreon. So um, you know, the more people that support us there, the the weirder stuff we'll do behind the mm-hmm. Patreon wall. So <laughs>
1: yeah, I need to get involved in that too. <laughs> yeah. This is all very new to me.
0: Oh right, yeah. You know, <laughs>
1: I, I I surmised like the other night that I'm probably the oldest person on Twitch.
0: Uh you'd probably be surprised. <laughs> and,
1: and that may you might find a gamer that's older than me or as old as me. But I don't think you'll find anybody else uh, musically any older.
0: They all mumble rappers or something? <laughs> 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 oh, no. Okay. Anyway, let's go go play some 45s all right did you advance the film strip are you on the final page well done Everything's upside down when you're hanging around and you're exposed to the bracing.